0: Uh, If you're just joining us, uh, welcome. If not, you know that we're looking at the book of Ephesians. And the book of Ephesians is a book by the Apostle Paul, um, one of the apostles of the early church. And one of the reasons or one of the things that we see a lot of in the book of Ephesians is that Paul is trying to address the very simple question, what is a Christian? Now that has all sorts of individual implications, like what it means for you singularly. And it also has implications as well for what that means like corporately. Like what's what's a bunch of Christians supposed to look like? And what's that called? And And we're going to look at that later on in the semester. But tonight, I want to suggest to you that we're going to be looking at what is quite possibly the sort of quintessential quintessential text in all of the Bible, perhaps, on what it means to be Saved. Now, we're going to look at what that word means. But you hear that language a lot if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you probably hear Christians use that word a lot. So what in the world does it mean? Well, Paul is going to tell us today in these verses. So we're looking at Ephesians chapter 2. We've made it through chapter 1. And we're going to be going verses 1 through 10. So if you have your piece of paper. Does anybody need one? Does anybody not? Travis, you need one? Got one? Thanks, Eric. Appreciate it. Derek, thanks, guys. Um, I'm going to start. Listen up, Travis. Just listen up, baby. It's coming. Here we go. Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the transgressions and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. This is God's Word. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Will you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask that You would be with us tonight, that You would speak to us, that You would encourage us. Some of us, Lord, need encouragement. Some of us need comfort. Lord, some of us just need some understanding about who in the world You are. Wherever we're at, oh Lord, um, we need to hear from You. And so I ask that You would do that tonight, that You would speak to us. Make us attentive for the next 25 minutes or so, and um, free us from distractions so that we can hear from you. And uh, let, just speak to us, I pray. Speak to us through your word and by your spirit. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Um, one of the things that <laughs> I'm sort of ashamed about, and if, you're, if you know me, this is one of the uh, things, that, sorry, I'm going to start my stopwatch. I didn't bring my watch tonight, um, that, I'm, that I'm prone to is when we were married, when my wife and I got married um, on September the 8th, 2007, uh, we were in St. Louis. It was a great day, great night. Lots of friends came over. We, were, we had a band come play at our reception. And uh, my buddy Mike Cobert, who I like to brag on, he's um, out in L.A. And he's on that show called Scrubs, if y'all ever saw it. He's one of the dudes on Scrubs, and I can talk to you about that later. And he's like booty dancing as a white guy, you know. And everybody thought that was hysterical. And then Laura and I stayed in downtown St. Louis, and um, we had an early flight the next morning to uh, go to where we were going on our honeymoon, and that was to Costa Rica. And the flight left at 6 o'clock in the morning. So that was like the dumbest thing that I ever did as like scheduling my honeymoon flight the day after my wedding. when We were, you know, celebrating late into the night. Anyways, bottom line is... We got off at about three o'clock in the morning to get to the airport, cause you gotta be at the airport two hours in advance for international flights, you know, that sort of thing. And we show up and I'm like, well, we don't get to the airport yet, that's the point. Um, we leave downtown St. Louis. And I think, I know where I am and I know where I need to go. And I know if I go that way, I'll eventually hit the interstate that needs to get me to where I need to go. Bad idea. <laughs> new wife, <laughs> like one day old, and I'm driving through the worst part of St. Louis. It's North City. There's like run-down b- buildings. It's like 3 a.m., and I'm thinking, I'm, I know that I'm going to get shot. My wife and I are not going to make it to our honeymoon. It's the shortest marriage on record. And the thing is, is that I was dumb Because all I had to do was look at a map. And I'd have known where I was, where I needed to go, and how I was going to get there. And I want to suggest to you that Paul, in a sense, in this text, is giving us a map. You see, if you're a Christian, he's putting you a point A. He's giving you a point B. And he's showing you how to get there. He wants us to be saved from the disaster, so to speak, of ending up in some place that you don't want to be. In fact, He's actually going to say that when you don't have your eye on this map, all sort of spiritual problems come. You'll be tired. You'll be miserable. You'll be anxious. And the whole lot of emotions that will run the map in your life. What is he trying to say? He's trying to say that outside the salvation that Jesus gives, there is no hope for anyone. So his heart for you and for me in this passage is to show us, is to show us how hands-off salvation is. He wants them and us to see that salvation is entirely from start to finish a work of God. Now, I want I want to say two quick things. He's gonna show us, he's gonna show us a couple of things, but I want you to hear me if you're in one of these two groups. First, Christian. I want you to know that what I'm gonna to say tonight is true of you. Remember, we have looked so far in Ephesians about asking this question what is a Christian? So if you are a Christian tonight, what we're gonna talk about is true of you, period. And it's meant to be a deep encouragement to you. Secondly, tonight if you're not a Christian, I'm glad you're here and I'm really glad that you're going to get to hear this. Because I want to suggest to you that you probably have a lot of confusion about what what a Christian actually is. And there is no better place to look tonight than in this text to get a good sense of what it actually means to be a Christian. So I'm glad that you're here. What are those three locations that Paul's going to put on the map for us, so to speak? First, he wants you to know the Christian's past. Namely, what a Christian was. What is his backstory, so to speak? Secondly, a Christian's passage. I don't think about like what you read passage. I'm thinking like what you go through, okay? second like the idea of like how did you get to where you are now and then lastly the christian's purpose what is your point if you are a christian i'll say them again the christian's past the christian's passage and the christian's purpose we're going to look at all three of those tonight so let's start first of all with what a christian was a christian's past Look with me at verses 1 through 3. You'll read it right there. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. I read over that really fast. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following in the course of the world. I'm just going to pause there. Paul is saying that if you are a Christian, that you at one point were actually Dead. What does Paul mean when he says that you were dead? Does that mean you were physically dead? No, that's not what he means. He means that at one point in your life, before you were saved by Jesus, that you were actually dead. That you were dead spiritually. And Paul is going to show us, go ahead, Bora, and go to the next one. He wants to talk to us about the severity, the severity of that condition, of your past, so to speak. And that's why he uses the language of death. Think about this way. A lot of us sometimes... I've said this before in here. A lot of us sort of think that what it means to be a Christian is just if the metaphor is I'm struggling a little bit. I'm trying to do good things, but I'm always failing. You know, I mean, like, I know I should be a nice, moral, and good person, but I just can't keep up the dance. You know what I mean? Have you ever felt that? Have you ever tried to be... A good, moral, nice, kind person. How's that working out for you? You can't sustain it. And my question to you is, if that's the thing that's going to make you a Christian, what happens when you can't do it? You see what I'm saying? Paul already knows the bad news. He says you're not in the water flailing about and all you need is a lifesaver somebody throwing it out. Paul is saying that if you want to use the whole swimming in the ocean metaphor, you're on the bottom of the ocean floor flounder food. You're meat for fish that eat on the bottom because you're dead. And the only way dead people ever live again is something outside of themselves has to come and rescue them. Severity. Paul is saying that your state was Dead. You cannot do anything, anything to save yourself. Why? Because you're dead. Secondly, go ahead, Bora. What is the cause of this? Look with me. He says that following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. Also in verse 1, it says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins. Now, When you hear the word sin, you probably just think, like, that's a bad person. Or, like, I've done something really, really wrong. And you know what? That's that's part of it. But when the Bible talks about the word sin, it actually means an inordinate self-love. Does that make sense? Like, what the Bible means when it talks about sin, it's actually saying that you are loving yourself and what you want too much that the ultimate love in your life is self and it's killing you think about it all the ways if you're a christian and you know that you sin the reason you do it is because you're selfish because what you want what you want when you want to get it you see what i'm saying and so the whole machine driving the bad boy is your own is your own heart loving what you want too much an old reformer martin luther used a latin phrase he says that our hearts are incurvatus in se, Which just literally means it's curved back in on itself. I love that illustration. That the heart, it, it's like it doesn't go out and try to love other people. It just literally goes whoop right back on itself. Isn't that interesting? That's what's killing us. You're dead because of sin. Listen to what one writer, a British writer in the 19... 19- early half of the 1900s, a man by the name of G.K. Chesterton. The London Times sent out a request to uh, prominent people in Britain uh, at the time and asked them this one question and then asked them, please, to respond to the question by sending it back into the paper. And here was the question. What is wrong with the world? Chesterton received this inquiry, thought about it, And responded, and here's what he wrote. Dear sirs, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. I love that. I love that. Because what G.K. Chesterton knew was that the biggest problem in the world wasn't out there. It was where? It's in here. It was in here. And Chesterton intuited. Actually, Chesterton was a Christian. He he knew what Paul was getting at, and that was the biggest problem in your life, and in my life, and the biggest problem that the world has is that men are dead, and that creates all sorts of problems. And the reason that men are dead is because they love themselves too much. They are sinners. I don't care what problem it is in the world. Finds its root, its its garden is sin. You can trace anything back. Your broken relationships, why do they hurt so bad? Because of sin. Why does it death happen in the world? Because of sin. It's a major, major problem. The point is, is that if you are a Christian, this was your past. This was your past. Two things that we can drive this home. I think first of all, this invites us. Christianity invites us to actual to a radical sense of honesty. Why? Because you don't have to hide about your sin. Because of what follows, the Gospel frees you to say things that you would never say about yourself. Because it provides you a safety net to be able to be honest. Because why? Think about it. God already knows your deepest and darkest secrets and sin patterns. Why do you want to deny them when there's real freedom? It invites us to honesty. But secondly, I think it does this for the Christian as well. It absolutely demands humility. Here's why. If you're a Christian, and this was your story, and you were on the bottom of the ocean floor, what boast do you now have that all of a sudden you're a Christian, and you got it all figured out? I mean, think of me. If you're dead, did you do anything to get God to save you? No. Then what are you boasting in? The option there is humility. It gives us a radical sense of humility. And it allows us and frees us to be incredibly honest. The Christian's past. We have to hold the second point in tension with the first. So I want to go on to the Christian's passage. What in the world do I mean by the Christian's passage? Look with me at verses 4-7. to seven. But God, let me, um, those two words ought to set your heart free. Because what this is saying is is that you were screwed. You were, you know what? But God, everything changed. Listen, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. What Paul wants you to know is that the way that you got from dead to alive is by sheer and utter grace. What is grace? I've heard somebody say it like this best. That grace is simply God's unmerited favor to you in Jesus. God's unmerited favor to you in Jesus. You've done nothing not a single thing, not a darn thing to deserve God's grace. How could you? You were dead. Jesus has loved you. He has loved you. Go ahead, and go to the next sub-point there. What is the motivation of His grace? So here's the question, right? Why does God love me? Why does God extend His grace to me? I mean, surely there's some reason that He's done this. I mean, we all have reasons for everything that we do. Why would God love me? And the answer is right there in the text. Did you see it? Look with me again at um, verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because, there's the reason, of the great love with which He loved us. Best news you're going to hear tonight. God loves you. Why? Because He loves you. Get wrapped up in that logic. What is the ground for God's love for you? His love for you. This is the most, I I don't even have words for it, it's the most infinitely satisfying thing that your heart can hear tonight. Because that means that God's love for you is not bound up in your dead heart. It's bound up in God's infinitely merciful heart to you. Another part in the Scriptures in Deuteronomy chapter 7, there's there's a text in there where it says that God loves us because He loves us. That is sheer and utter grace. That's the motivation for grace. But that's not it. There's also a purpose for grace. And did you notice what it was? That the reason that God has saved you by grace is so that, look with me in verse 7, in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why did God save you? To unload all of His riches on you for all of eternity. Hallelujah. Y'all, there is nothing better for your soul tonight than that. There is nothing better. I don't, if you fail out of school, you still have this. You still have this. That's the best thing for you tonight. It really is. Now, a couple other things. Why do we have to hold these two points together? Like our past and our passage. Said otherwise, the real depth of our sin and the real richness of God's mercy. I want to suggest to you this. God's grace in your life and in your heart is only going to be as powerful and as magnific- magnificent and as, as beautiful to you as you're able to be honest about your brokenness and sin. We looked at Luke all last semester, and what did we say about Jesus? That he did not come to call the righteous, but sinners unto, unto himself. The idea is it's like, yeah, I'm a sinner. And God's grace is bigger still. I'll say it another way. Your sin is not a barrier to God's grace. But you have to be honest and be well acquainted with how broken and sinful and dead you really are for you to know and for you to experience the riches and the goodness of God's grace. It just doesn't work any other way. If you're not well, you don't, I mean, if you're well, you don't go to a doctor. But when you're cancer laden and it's ridden throughout every organ in your body, the place you go is to the doctor for treatment. If your problem is great, the healing is that much better. And you know this to be true in your life. Listen to what one man Jack Miller said. He used to say two things. He'd say, cheer up twice. He'd say, cheer up. You're a lot worse off than you think you are. That's pretty true, isn't it? Things are a lot worse than you want to admit. But here's the second cheer up. Cheer up. You're more loved and enjoyed by God than you ever dared hope. That right there will preach. That's money. Because what that means is that you hadn't even scratched the surface on how much God enjoys you. And that's what every heart needs. Listen, here's what I'm trying to say. Being a Christian is not, is not, not, not about what you do to get God to accept you. Being a Christian is about God saving you by His own free grace. Somebody said it like this. I love it. Going to church on Sunday does not make you a Christian Any more than going into a garage makes you an automobile. You see that? I'll go even further. Nor does reading your Bible make you a Christian any more than reading a mechanic's manual makes you a mechanic. I'll go further. Nor does being nice to people make you a Christian any more than being nice to people makes you the Queen of England. What's my point? It's not about what you do. It's about what God has done to make you a son or a daughter. And your sin, as I said before, is not a barrier to His overpowering, irresistible grace. What does this mean practically? Hang with me. That means your porn addiction is not a barrier. Yeah, you guys just perked up, didn't you? Your porn addiction is not a barrier for the loving kindness of Jesus. Your same-sex attraction is not a barrier to the loving kindness and mercy of Jesus. Your gossiping tongue is not a barrier to the loving kindness of Jesus. Your infinite love for money is not a barrier to the infinite loving kindness of Jesus. There is no barrier. God shatters it. He blasts right through it and He rescues you off of the bottom of the ocean floor. You cannot stop His grace when He sets His heart on you. He comes with a vengeance and with a fury to capture and to rescue you. Hallelujah. That is what your soul needs to hear tonight. Lastly, what in the world is a Christian made for? Look with me at verse 10. This is where we're going to wrap up. He says, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul is saying that every Christian, when he or she becomes one by God's own free grace, is now made to, to do good works and to bless the world. Listen, one of the critiques sometimes about RUF and about me and my preaching is that you hear me say a lot that it's not what you do that's going to get God to love you or save you. And so sometimes you hear what I'm not saying and you walk out of the door and you say, well, yeah, but aren't we supposed to love people? Or aren't we supposed to read our Bible?" Or aren't we supposed to be people who pray? And I'm saying, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I'm going to mash it into your heart as best as I can that you don't do those things to get God to love you. You do those things because God loves you. I get the privilege of getting to talk with y'all one-on-one over coffee. And I love love it. When I hear stories and you tell me, I just, want to, I just want to love people. I just want to give my life away. I just want to serve Jesus because He's changed my life. That's it. You're getting it. You're beginning to get it. Because of God's love for you, it takes your heart. It literally brings it new life. That's what Paul talks about. He says that you are God's creation. Look, create and created in Christ Jesus. That word created right there is the same word that's used in the Old Testament when God creates the world out of nothing. And what Paul is saying is that that same creator God has taken you, dead on the ocean floor, and remade you. Remade you. The same Paul is going to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that you are, if anyone is in Christ, that you are a new creation. You're brand spanking new. You're something utterly different. You may not feel like it, but you are. That's the promise for every single one of you. That's the promise. And also, the Son is so beautiful in this this particular verse, as it says here that we are His workmanship. Now, that word workmanship is the Greek word poema. And what do you think we get? What word do you think we get from that? Poem. Do you know that if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, that you are literally a work of art of God? You are His masterpiece. That He delights in you. And He has so fashioned you into a masterpiece, not for yourself, but for the sake of the world. For the sake of the world. This is who you are. Listen to what one writer puts. One of my favorites, his name is C.S. Lewis, and he writes a book called The Problem of Pain. And in it, he writes this. Listen, talking about the Christian being a work of art. And you got to hang on because uh, when I first read this, this kind of went like this. I came back and read it and went like this. And I came back and read it and I went, oh, oh, you know. Listen to what he says. We are, not, ver- not metaphorically, but in truth, a divine work of art, something that God is making, and therefore something with which He will not be satisfied until it has a certain character. Over a sketch made idly to amuse a child, an artist may not take much trouble. He may be content to let it go even though it is not exactly as he meant it to be, but over the great picture of his life, the work which he loves, though in a different fashion, as intensely as a man loves a woman or a mother a child, he, the artist, will take endless trouble and would doubtless thereby give endless trouble to the picture if it actually could feel it. One could imagine a feeling picture after being rubbed and scraped and recommenced for the tenth time, wishing that it were only a thumbnail sketch whose making was over in a minute. In the same way, it's natural for us to wish that God had designed for us a less glorious and less arduous destiny, but... then we are wishing not for more love, but for less. You know this to be true if you're an artist. You pour over the things you love. And if you're a painter, you scrape the paint off. If you're a musician, you take your eraser and you rearrange the score. If you're an actor, you go through your lines, you line bash, you find that character. What else? If You don't even have to be an artist. If you're you're an athlete, that's why you spend hours in the batting cage. It's because for the love of the game, you pound the snot out of the baseball. And what Paul is saying is is that you and me are God's magnum opus. The work of His life. And He gives countless hours and energy to making you more and more beautiful. Not because He hates you. But because he infinitely and immeasurably delights and loves you. That's amazing. That is utterly amazing. How do we drive this home quickly? I want you to know that no matter where you are, what your story is, I don't care how broken of a past you've had or how much crud and crap you think that you're in presently. That God will use you. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of will. And do you know that your story, no matter how busted up and broken it is, is actually part of the purposes that He works for good to use you in this world to bless it and to love others. In other words, God does not waste your pain. He does not waste your brokenness. He puts it to the most glorious and beautiful of use. He will use you. He will use you. You are His poem for the blessing of the world. I close very simply with this. John Newton was a man who wrote one of the famous songs of Christendom, Amazing Grace. And John Newton was a man who was a slave owner. And when he got converted, when he got converted, God radically changed his life. But as he was dying... It's not on his deathbed, but later in his life, he wrote this. I am not what I ought to be. Ugh, how imperfect and deficient I am. I'm not what I hope to be. Soon, soon shall I put off mortality, and with mortality all sin and imperfection. I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil, and I would cleave to what is good. Yet, though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. And I can heartily join with the Apostle and acknowledge by the grace of God, I am what I am. In short, he is saying I am not the man I ought to be. I'm not the man that I wish to be. I'm not the man I hope to be. But by the grace of God, I'm not the man that I used to be. The map. The map. Remember it? The past, where you came from. Point B, where you're going, how you got there. All of these things are true about you if you're a Christian. All of these things are. And I want to say to you, when you begin to get more in tune with who you are in Christ, your life begins to be radically changed. It just does. That's the way the Holy Spirit works in your life. Do you know this to be true about you? Would you believe it? Would you believe it? Would you dare to believe it? Let's pray.